Have we identified any opening sound bites yet? I don't think we have. Nothing stood out to me like some of the other times. We had Drunken Lee last I've time. So myself. I need Drunken Terry this time. Drunken me? Yeah. I've never been drunk on the show. <laughs> yet. Oh. There's our sound bite. <laughs> 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 This is the RC Roundtable, a casual discussion about all aspects of flying model airplanes. Okay, well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. And joining me again is Lee Ray. Hello. And Terry Dunn. Hello. Hey, guys, welcome back. So uh, who wants to start first? What's, who has something they want to talk about that's new and, and upcoming? In terms <laughs> of new products... We talked a few weeks ago about the the flight. No, gosh, not the fly zone. What's the other one? E flights. We talked about both the fly zone and the E flight micro B twenty five. I now have the E flight in my hands, and it has flown. And don't you want to know all about Ooh, it? Yeah, give me some dirty details. Tell us more. <laughs> it comes pre built, just like you would expect for an ultra micro. Um, it comes with decals for. If not all, then a lot of the Doolittle Raiders in terms of the nose art and things like that. But the basic insignia and all that is already put on there. And it looks good. It's nice in scale. It's got some good details with guns and things like that. Uh, The battery goes under a magnetic hatch, which is the the front bombardier glass. So it it goes together pretty well. The wheels look good. They snap in and out, so you can hand launch it or go off of uh, paved ground. I would think it's probably uh, the wheels are too small to try any sort of grass. And I only hand-launched it so far because I've only got grass fields around here. I maidened it about a week ago, and the maiden flight was interesting. Oh. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, um, I didn't do any background research on it. Apparently, other people have already had their hands on them, and so there's a little bit of information floating around about uh, common issues. But I went in blind, and I noted that it was quite nose-heavy out of the package, and there's only so much room to move the battery around to fix that. One cell, 300 milliamp hour LiPo. And the version I have is the bind and fly, so it doesn't come with a charger or the battery or transmitter. So I connected it to my Spectrum DX8 and had E-Flight's battery to put in there. But I did do a few things. I put some weight in the tail to try to level it out. And I flew it on a day that I probably shouldn't have. It was kind of windy. And the field that I was at is small, and it's bordered by tall trees. So you have a lot of really turbulent air around there. And when you combine that with a new untried model that's untrimmed and the balance is a little iffy, um, you know, I was really stacking the odds against me. Uh, but to ruin the surprise, it turned out okay. I put in two short flights, and it, it landed fine. But they were very hairy flights. One thing that I did notice in my pre-flight is that the elevator has some reflex built into it, so a little bit of up elevator at neutral. So as soon as we launched it, that sucker went straight up, and it took me quite a while to get it trimmed out. And even once it was trimmed out, there was a lot of pitch change with speed. So after those two flights, went back and made a little modification where I can move the battery even further back and took some of the tail weight out. And most importantly, I fixed that reflex. And since then, it's been fine. It flies quite nicely. 
So I took it out on another calm day to the same location and, and had a good time with it. I was having a little bit of flashback for a second from our last episode where we talked about crashing review planes. <laughs> right. Yeah, that thought was in my head. So, uh, But the good news is I was able to get some flight photos, and, and since then I've flown it a few more times. And, um, yeah, it, it's all good, and I'm looking forward to spending more time with it. And actually, I'm actually looking a lot forward to um, taking it off from a runway once I get to a place that has a paved runway I can use. I can't remember. Does that one have a brush or brushless motors in it? Two brushed. Oh, okay. And they both turn the same direction. How does it feel for power? It's okay. It does basic aerobatics. I did loops and some inverted flight and a roll. It's all pretty sedate, but it does them. I saw some people criticizing it online, the fact that it had brushed versus brushless motors on it. Um, it doesn't seem underpowered. Uh, I think it was a, more of a philosophical uh, disagreement than an actual power disagreement. I think a lot of the ultramicros still have brushed motors. And the trade-off being you're going to spend considerably more if you go brushless. Yeah, 82 speed controllers so, versus just having one. Right. So, uh, no complaints from me in the power department. Not that I'd complain either if it had brushless, but I don't think it needs it. Well, I know when you first brought up the B-25s, because you said you're going to try to review both the E-Flight and the Fly Zone, that I have the Fly Zone P-38, and I really like it. I'm sad that they discontinued it. I've had a tough time trying to find another new in-box, because I'd love to have a, a second one. But if we can get together, I'd like to you know, compare the two, the B-25, because they're actually the same size. Yours is, what, 21 inches? Oh, gosh, you would ask me that. I don't uh, know. Uh, 21.65, yeah. Yours is, I mean, our, the planes are physically the same size, and, and I, I really like how the P-38 flies, so let us know when you get that fly zone B-25, what the characteristics are. Are you going to hold me to that? Well, yeah, I thought you said you were going to try to get both and compare the two. I think I was challenged to do that. We'll have to re- review the recordings to see. But, uh, yeah, that's still on the agenda, if I can get a hold of one of those. I think they're available now as well. Cool. Yeah, look forward to seeing the results. Yeah, because if I can't get a P-38, either one of those B-25s, especially since the specs are very similar, uh, I might want to try to grab a... Hmm. Well, that sounds good. What, what do you have, Lee? What, what do you have uh, sparked your interest? Uh, well, I'm going to bring up the discussion that we kind of got on before we hit record. Uh, and that was this uh, this new champ that's come out, this S+. And for the listeners, this is the first time I've heard of it. And uh, Terry uh, brought it to my attention. Uh, I'm a big champ fan. I have a, a champ that my father built, a 15-size champ that's uh, made by Midwest that uh, I've, I still fly today. And then when the Hobby Zone champ came out, Oh, excuse, yeah, the Hobby Zone, excuse me. Um, I got one for my son, and he loves that thing. And so um, Terry just gave me the information on this Champ S Plus from Hobby that, Zone, and I'm looking at it right now. Is that an Aronica Champ? Yeah. Aronica, yeah. Aronica? It's a semi-scale model of that. Mm-hmm. But Terry, you, you were talking a lot about it. Why don't you give the listeners all the specs, because I'm kind of following along. Well, it looks like just a bigger version of the ultra micro champ that a lot of people like and what's most interesting to me is that it has a brushless power system rather than the brush like we were just talking about and it's also got the s plus system which is a version of safe that has gps built into it 
and I don't have any personal experience with it in this champ, but I did use that same system in my HobbyZone Sportsman S Plus. And I think it's a good thing. You get the benefits of safe, which is the self-leveling and all that that helps you out. But with the GPS, if you really get out of sorts, you can push a button and it'll hover or it'll circle around a certain location. So it's not going to fly off. And to me, that's always been one of the trade-offs of those autopilot self-leveling systems is that it doesn't turn for you. So it's keeping the wings level. And if you're don't have the presence of mind to turn, it's going to keep the wings level all the way to the horizon and you'll never see it again. So the S plus kind of takes care of that risk. If you hit a virtual fence, it'll automatically turn around and start orbiting over your location. So really the only question left to ask is how much help do you really want? So there's a trade off there. You, You learn how to fly and take the risk of crashing or you learn how to operate this more complex electronic system that does more of the flying for you at some point the the learning paths cross and you're at the same destination but it's definitely different ways to get the same skill set well it you know it says it has three flight modes beginner intermediate experience i'm hoping there's an easy way to flip the switch to activate and deactivate those features um yeah, hope you don't keep the beginner on for so long. I, I don't know. Again, I just think it's overkill, like putting uh, AS3X in a glider. Um, it's only, what, seven inches bigger? So the wingspan's only seven inches more. It goes from a one-cell to a two-cell. So well, I mean, Look at that in terms of percentage. That's a, a 30% increase. I, not having them in front of me, I would imagine it's a significant difference. Really? In size. I three, think so. Three inches on each side. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Again, I, I think it's neat. I mean, the price is not too bad. So we went from 100 bucks for the uh, Champ ready to fly to, what is it, 140 150 bind and fly? For the S Plus? Yeah. It's advertised right now at $170. Well, and it is not yet available. Well, the green price is 150 oh. So that's not bad. I mean, for what you get, I mean, I'd say that's a pretty good price. I mean, for... For, well, that's bind and fly. It's probably what one sixty one seventy. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the ready to fly. Uh, I'm uh, sorry about that. So yeah, I was looking at the PNF. Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems okay, but at this point, once Austin got comfortable with the champ, you know, our next plane was the Apprentice. We went up significantly instead of you know seven inches. We went up to a forty two inch. I think the the maybe I think it might be forty eight inches on the uh, on the Apprentice. And again, he he's flying it without any of the other features, so it's it's probably nice. I think if you really need it, yeah. But I don't know. That's wow. I can this the auto land on such a small plane. Yeah, and I would imagine that it's even with all the electronic help, it's still a fair weather flyer. There's probably a pretty limited window where it can fly reliably. And you bring up a good point. You talked about learning on one plane and transitioning to another. It's been my experience that. You can still go back to that trainer and do fun things with it. Once you become a more experienced pilot, a more experienced pilot, your capabilities open up more performance capabilities in a previous airplane, if that makes sense. So I wonder, as we get into this new generation of electronically stabilized trainers, if that possibility is still there. Do the electronics kind of limit the adaptability of those planes down the road? Or are you always stuck with the airplane holding your hand? 
for me, the technology is good to have. I mean, yes, I, I have some big planes that um, I've had with and without AS3X running, and I do notice that it flies more stable, and it's it's nice, but I like the feedback. I like to know how I am responding to my plane's actions in the air. And I think if you keep buying these planes with the safe and the panic recovery, you, you, you tie yourself to those features. You, you, you have a false sense of security that you, they must be working at all times. And if something were to fail, you, you might lose your ability to recover uh, because you understand the basics of flight. And am, I, am I just making a, a mountain out of a molehill? Am I exaggerating this thing? Because I just, again, how I learned was learning a glider, dead stick, find your spot, learn how to control your energy and land. And when I moved up to powered flight, I had to know how to make my plane fly. This is, you're letting the electronics fly the plane. Right. And that was kind of my point earlier. Sooner or later, you have to overcome that limitation. And either you do it by accepting more risk up front that you might crash, or you do it later on once you've kind of become more accustomed to it with the help of the electronics. And I don't know what the right answer is, and it's probably different for different people. And and again, I don't know if this plays into it, but from what I've heard, a lot of the appeal for multi-rotors for the younger generation is the technological aspect of it. And so we're seeing those same things applied to fixed-wing airplanes. Does that make them more attractive to the younger crowd? I don't know, but maybe that's part of the appeal of all these systems that we're seeing in fixed-wing planes. I'm waiting for some little kid to come out to me and say, move over, old man. You're an old-timer. <laughs> this is how we fly today. <laughs> well, I think it, anything that makes the plane easier to fly and takes less time to learn how to fly it is going to be an advantage. We're going to be taking something that people are going to like that's just coming into the hobby. And I think we have a different generation where people don't want to spend as much time learning how to control something when when you have the electronics that can pretty much do it for you to a certain extent. Having it able to maybe adjustable to where you can slowly decrease the amount of help it does for you, I think is probably the ultimate uh, compromise in this case. What do you mean my smartphone can't fly this plane? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is there an app for that? <laughs> It'll be interesting to see uh, what sort of uh, crowd takes up this plane when it comes out. Yeah. The, the smaller UM champ was well loved by all, and I think a lot of people used it as primary trainers with and without help. So maybe this is you know, just the next larger big brother of that same philosophy. Yeah. Well, I do like the champ, and I hope we get to keep that plane flying for a long time. I've already replaced the rudder, you know, and that wasn't very hard. So it's not a difficult plane to to do repairs on either. So yeah, if this if and when this comes out, I'll hopefully get a chance to look at it. Well, okay. And that leaves fits. Uh, not much for me. Uh, something just popped up. It's not new, new, but it, apparently it just started shipping. And that's the Spitfire Mark 14, or XIV, if you're reading it, uh, from E-Flight. And this one, I wasn't really aware of his existence until people started saying, hey, it just shipped, and look at this. And uh, and guess what? It's 1.2 meters. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of an interesting version of the Spitfire. This is the Griffin engine powered Spitfire. These are the, the the more powerful version with the five bladed prop on it, and uh, slightly different aesthetics in the way the fuselage nose is designed. And uh, it looks pretty nice. It's got working flaps, 
Of course it has. We were just talking about the, the safe and AS3X. It has all that in there. Uh, I don't know why you'd want this. If you are if you need safe for this type of model, I don't know if you should be flying this kind of model, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but it's, it certainly looks nice and seems, for the most part, I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of the Griffin-powered Spitfires. I think they weren't quite as sexy as the earlier Spitfires. But it is interesting to see this particular version. Uh, and that five-bladed prop certainly is a night catcher. Though they did a mistake, it's spinning the wrong direction. But that's just me. You can you fix guys? that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's probably hard to find a five-bladed prop anyway. at any rate. So. Isn't that what your 3D printer's for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I would not trust a prop I print on a 3D printer. <laughs> we were talking about that. We, I was just kidding. Yeah, just if this were nineteen fifty, you could just carve one. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure some people still do that. <laughs> what yeah, is carving? What is this strange thing carving you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but uh still good to see the Spitfire out there. Need to see more Spitfire out at the flying fields. Don't see a whole lot of them out there. So I'm happy to see that. So And well and let me just say, well I have no doubts about Fitz's ability to make his own five bladed reverse rotation prop. The spinner could be problematic. Well, now Have I've ever th- seen a, a five-bladed spinner. Well, I've three D reverse printed- rotation. <laughs> no, but I have three D printed spinners before. That I would trust. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I guess there's a lot less risk with that. Yeah, I've done it for a club mate, so uh, that I could do, or I could take a existing three blade. Would that work? No, I guess they're not quite right. Nah, nah. Yeah, so I could either mold one or three D print one. Well, Fitz, this is where you say challenge accepted. <laughs> I think I'm overloaded on challenges, so I'm going to pass on this one. Yeah, I think we need to keep metrics on these challenges because too many go unanswered. <laughs> we need a challenge jar? Yes. <laughs> and the winner is... <laughs> okay, well, I think uh, it's time for take a break, and we'll be right back. Well, the big news that came out is the FAA's release of Part 107. And for the commercial pilots out there, this is uh, very big, important news. It it kind of made some people mad who have been sitting on a wait list for Exemption 333 for a very long time. And a lot of the messages uh, coming across like the RC groups uh, thread on it of people who have spent a lot of money trying to get their exemption uh, and and we're still waiting for them to come through it's good news overall that we finally have some dialogue between the FAA on what a commercial pilot really needs to have and we'll put the link on our podcast uh, website of what it is with a summary, basically. The entire document is like 624 pages. Um, it'll just put you to sleep. But the summary is pretty much you know, anything under 55 pounds. It is line of sight. Uh, there were some people wanting to do it FPV, but I, I don't think line of sight is a problem, uh, especially because it does allow you a, another observer. So you can still have someone using FPV goggles as long as another person is with them line of sight. So the pilot in command can be no, FPV as, I, as long as the observer can see it? I apologize. I believe the pilot in command must be visual line of sight, but who, like whoever's the camera operator 
can do the FPV. Interesting. And I'm looking at okay. it right now because it says you you may use your visual observer, but it's not required. Okay? And it just says right. the unmanned aircraft must remain within visual line of sight of the operator. And it says or visual observer, but oh. there's no requirement for a visual observer. So my assumption there is one pilot would keep it visual line of sight, and the other person can be FPV controlling the camera angles, which, quite honestly, I think that's the right way to do it anyway. You know, that's the that's a good safety measure to have. Well, I think the the driver behind that is to make sure somebody can see traffic that's coming. So whether it's the guy moving the sticks or somebody standing next to them, the the intent is satisfied either way. And it sounds like they've accommodated either scenario. It does. And I listened to the RC Group's uh, live feed. They announced, I think it was the day of, maybe the day after the 107 was released, and uh, it was a great discussion. I'm looking at it. I won't go through everything. It's it's really good stuff. There's some concerns about operating in certain class airspace. What requirements do you need? But I don't think anybody was really displeased that it's finally done, especially, I think, those who have been wanting to get this done. You don't have to have a pilot's license anymore. And that was a huge hurdle for, for many people or, you know, trying to get all the paperwork completed. Right now, you have to pass a test by the FAA and you have to be vetted by the TSA and you have to keep your aeronautical knowledge license up to date every two years. And so far, I don't think anybody's complaining about I mean, or seriously complaining about these rules. I know some people were saying that in the film industry, the one restriction, not being able to fly at night, it hinders them. And you could imagine, I guess, in some big cinema photography out there, there's a lot of night flying scenes that I think could be used. So they'll have to switch to, I guess, full-size helicopters for that. Or or they get a 333. I guess that is, and yeah. I, you're right. I'm, can you define those differences? I, I think I'm pretty squared away on it, but for people who might not know... But you talked about people who have been waiting for a 333 oh, on the exemption. exemption, yeah. And My understanding is that people who wanted to fly RC, whether multi-rotor, fixed-wing, whatever, if they wanted to do so commercially, they had to get this exemption from the FAA. And the, one of the FAA stipulations was that the pilot in command had to have a pilot's license. And that was one of a long list of requirements. That is correct. I'd- I think there's okay. still a requirement like that. They're saying that, I'm reading part of it, and for a remote pilot certificate, uh, you have to hold a Part 61 pilot certificate. If you, no, it's if, it's you have a choice of one or the other. Oh, either. Okay, yes. gotcha. Gotcha. So you have to have a pilot certificate or pass the aeronautical knowledge test for small UAS systems. That is correct. Gotcha. Sorry, I misread that. No, that's good. That's a great point, though, because that was the big thing. A lot of people were saying, wow, why do I have to get my pilot's license? And right now, you don't anymore. And it's, Terry, this is great. Uh, This happened. (laughs) I was listening to uh, some of the guys, or reading, rather, the articles on RC groups, and the FAA quickly shut down the Section 333 on their website. And I can't get to the pages right now. There is no more 333 frequently asked questions page. It's gone. So well, <laughs> they really, they really didn't you. like it. <laughs> uh, never mind. No, nothing to see here. <laughs> Please turn <laughs> well, around. Yeah, I would. I would just venture that a lot of the people that were in that waiting line can now do what they wanted to do under the Part 107 rules. True. And now there is a downside to this change, but. 
in retrospect, it really is the same. This won't take effect until August. So those who have been waiting for a 333 are still going to wait, and those who have no nothing are going to have to wait. Right now, the only people who can do this commercially are the ones who succeeded in getting the exemption 333. One thing I saw, though, I thought might be cost some pauses is the daylight-only operations that might get in the way of certain things that people might want to shoot at night. What if you have an infrared camera, you're chasing... You're doing a wildlife experiment or something, and you need to do it at night or something like that. You still fall under the three 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 rules, and you get in line for that. Uh, well, okay. I don't. I don't think the three 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 is an option anymore, Terry. I think oh, if I've, you have it, you can. But there's no. There's not going to be an exemption three 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 anymore. Okay, so I misunderstood. If that's true, then my understanding was different. I thought that the the baseline of 333 was a little bit broader and for people who wanted things not covered under 107 they could still do the 333 no there there's no option for 333 anymore so that is one of the observations i had heard is that there are people who want to fly at night so if you want to and you currently don't have the 333 your hands are tied so there is no such thing as a provision for commercial flying at night or beyond visual line of sight Except if if you currently have a three three three, I don't think that okay. rule changed. So anybody who's waiting to get their license won't have that option unless they change that. Or there have been rumors that the FAA might start another exemption as part of one hundred seven. As mm-hmm. that might be one of those options. Like you have to submit a reason that you would need to have a night flying job. So it more sounds more like a waiver. Uh, that's yeah, that's what I meant. Now, is this anything like the registration where it's supposed to go through a period of public comment and feedback before it's actually in place? Wow, I have no idea. I think it's done. Or is it another fast track? And while it sounds good on the surface, I, I would just be leery of any any other attempt to fast track something, even if it is ultimately you know, for the better. I, I think it's done. I think all... You know their purpose of this, and, and I, I know that uh, the quote unquote the Obama administration is getting a lot of credit for you know getting this handled efficiently. Is that it's a done deal? So, sorry, I had to laugh. Did you see my my little finger quotes in the air? <laughs> uh, okay, because everything about it up to this point was why are they still late? And when's it going to happen? And years behind schedule. Well, I think they were getting their butts kicked by the the, the public. So you know, and obviously there was a a, a comment that they were overwhelmed by the number of, you know, 333 exemptions, you know, laid at their feet. You know, there were just too many for them to handle. So they had to come up with an alternative. Well, that's been part of their plan all along, right? The 333 was an interim. You know, I'm talking out of my butt. I I really don't know the the background on this, so I'll be quiet. (laughs) No, as I've made a comment before, not many people do know what's going on, but Right now, this is uh, no. I, I'm jumping to one part at the very, very bottom of the summary. It says model aircraft, and in you know, word for word, it says proposed rule would not apply to model aircraft that satisfy all of their criteria specified in Section 336 of Public Law 112-95. And the the one saving grace we have with them including that is that it's still is referencing Rule 336, or excuse me, Section 336 for model aviation, which it, it's it's a blessing that we still have it because it it keeps that that dialogue running until hopefully hopefully it doesn't happen that 
the Senate and, and House rewrite that into some new other number. Right. And then watching the AMA's recent video about all this, it sounds like they're taking that paragraph to to be a reaffirmation from the FAA that 336 is valid and going to stay under whatever number it may end up in new legislation. Exactly. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Fitz, do you have any friends who use UAVs for commercial work? Not particularly. I have one club member who was attempting to at one point, but as far as I know, he's no longer doing it. I I have one friend who lives in this uh, community I know has done some UAV work uh, for a price, so I'll need to get a hold of him, and I'll I'll have an update either on the website or we'll follow up in our next podcast and get his take on it. Now, he was doing work under a 333 before? He is a pilot, just, 333, so he is a pilot. Okay, so so he got the waiver. and Okay. Well, just being a pilot isn't enough. You have to get the waiver as well. Correct. Okay. And it's well, not actually, his main business, so he was – isn't it great oh, to be irrelevant. filthy rich? We just, I think I'll get that exemption. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I just remembered our club president was doing that, uh, Mike Liable. Mm-hmm. The caveat is he wasn't in the U.S. when he was doing it. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, Who cares? Well, the, but did, who cares did, about the FAA? Did you hear about that story, though, what he was doing? Is this the trip to the South Pole? Yeah, the Antarctic thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he might be fun to have as a guest to talk about that. Yeah, I guess he would. Uh, next time I see him, I'll ask him about it. Well, that's all I had on Part 107. Again, we'll have links out there for listeners so you can read it for yourself, but plan to have a nice hour <laughs> sit at the computer <laughs> screen to read all 600 pages of the thing. Yeah, grab some popcorn. Yeah. I know one guy mentioned he got he got through 619 pages and fell asleep. <laughs> so it's probably that so, last page that's going to get us. So popcorn and no doze. There you go. This FA regulation is sponsored by Red Bull. <laughs> Lee, I, I also understand you went to a pretty interesting fly-in. Was it this past weekend? It was yesterday. Randy's Hobbies uh, up here in uh, Cypress, Texas, uh a gentleman who works there, Terry, he's a member of Sparks RC in Cyprus. And I had known about this last year. He just put together this little event for vintage aircraft, anything from 2000 down to 1950. So, Is this models? Models, yeah. This model aircraft. And the way I read the flyer was that anything that came out before 2000, not a model or full-scale aircraft that runs between 1950 and 2000, but any model airplane that was kitted between right. those times. And gotcha. I had, you know, I have quite a few from the 80s and 90s, so I didn't get to bring a plane out. I, I, my back was still hurting, so I, I knew I wasn't going to be out there very long. But uh, I went out there, and there were, I don't know, about 10 planes that fit. I, I got there first thing, so it's possible that a lot more people showed up afterwards. But I grabbed a couple of shots and talked to some people, and you'll see the photos on our Facebook page. But that's neat because I, I, you know, that's kind of like when I was flying kits. So I started really in the early 80s, and I'm, I'm lucky to have a couple of vintage uh, two-meter gliders uh, that are very popular, like the Aquila and the Olympic. My dad had one of the Sail Airs, those huge gliders, you know, known for thermal competition. Um, but anyway, so I, I would have brought those. But it was neat. Good. It was fun to hang out there and, and meet with those guys. Does it have to be a kit, or can it be an ARF? 
I guess if it was an ARF before 2000. <laughs> so if 2000 is vintage, <laughs> it doesn't sound all that long ago. <laughs> well, it doesn't, but that's 16 years ago. So an ARF that was built prior to 2000. So 90s and earlier. Yeah, I mean, think about it. There's, I mean, there weren't a lot. And then maybe in the 90s, some yeah, ARF kits came out. But... Well, I think it qualifies just because most model airplanes are have a much shorter lifespan than that. Okay, so, so yeah, whether or not it was built back then or not, but they're basically saying anything in the twentieth century. Yeah, well, I well for for the planes that you guys are are you know about me, the one that's on my about page, that Trainer Forty, that was the first powered plane my father and I built, and right. you know, so that would have qualified. And your champ, and the champ, my dad's, yeah, my dad's Midwest champ that I electrified. So, I actually think that's a neat idea for a flying. I wish I had known it was going on. Uh, it would have been. Well, I was actually busy this weekend, but um, hopefully it'll do it next year because I would definitely like to participate in that. I'm sure I got a plane or two that's pretty old. Well, that was I could take a zaggy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my zaggy. Yeah, I don't know. Was a zaggy before 2000? Yeah, yeah. Really? Barely. Barely. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that would be interesting. I'm rummaging through my hangar in my head to see what I have that would qualify, and I think I've got a few that I could. Uh, Take to something like that. You know, I'm glad I have a lot of those planes that my, you know, my dad and I put together, like Orca, the, the the tow plane that I, you know, I had, I built, I flew, kept it in storage for a long time. It deteriorated, and I rebuilt it, and then that's the first time, you know, we did aero tow. So, right, that would have worked. And speaking of, you mentioned taking some of those big old gliders out there. Would you launch those with aero tow or high start? No, those would have been high start. Although, okay. although I have a Goldberg Electra, that was another one I was going to bring. My dad bought me that kit, you know, before he died. So that kit was about 25 years old, and uh, he never got to see it fly, unfortunately. But that's uh, powered by, I might, it might be one of those mega motors. No, the monster. Excuse me. Remember we were talking about the brush motors. Okay, it's a magnetic mayhem. Magnetic the mayhem. Endo plasma. Yeah. So I think that geared, one is. I hope. Yeah, it's geared. Okay. So that would have been one I, I was going to fly out there, too. So that's, that's you know, that's LMR, limited motor run. But, uh, yeah, the other would have been high start. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have anything that old. I know I have one plane, though. Its condition is, <laughs> it needs to be recovered. <laughs> I think the wings well, are a little beat up. How old is that Spitfire? What Spitfire? The one you took Your to? Gillows. Oh, yeah, that would qualify. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about the little guy. And you, you just flew it, it two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't fixed it yet. But, yeah, I got that. I've got an old kit that I built called a Bullpup that uh, I, it dates back to the 80s. And I flew it at best a few times, but it needs some uh, needs some TLC. Uh, I know I have a few kits I, uh, I'd have to build, but one of them wouldn't take long to build. That dates back to the 80s, I believe, at least the 90s. Well, it, it's unique. The event was unique. I liked it. You kind of, you narrow down your your group, your you know your pilots to that date range because you know you, you try to get as many people there as you can. So there's going to be a lot of modern kits. But maybe if you have another air show, you tell people that there's going to be a, a, a section, you know, a time during the event where they'll fly just vintage aircraft. You know. Yeah, I guess that's the tricky thing is when you're talking about planes that old. You know, not a whole lot of planes survive that long <laughs> sometimes. So your 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 pool of planes is maybe somewhat limited, but I, I still like the idea. Hopefully, they'll do it again next year. What would you bring, Terry? If you, let's say we had an event here in Houston and you could come down and see us, if you could bring a couple of planes, what would you bring for a vintage air show event? 
off the top of my head, I would have my Great Plains PT-20, which was my first RC plane. Uh, that's still around mostly in stock form. And after that, gosh, I have a kit-built Electrostreak that I think would qualify. It just has to be finished. It's probably 90% done. Uh, the Zaggy, if I wanted to explain myself to everyone. <laughs> I'm sure there's others, but those are the top three that come to mind. What is the oldest plane that you have in your collection, flying or not flying? For me, it's the PT-20. Uh, I have a plane called the Pelican. It was the first plane I ever bought. I bought it at the Ram Show in like 1986, maybe, or 87. It was RCM plans, but I think they also kitted it. And that would be the oldest one I have. I used to have a buzzard bombshell that was given to me by one of my clubmates when I was in Houston. And I don't know when it was built, but it would had been built a long time ago. But I ended up giving it to someone else after I converted it to electric. When did the Hobie Hawks come out? Weren't they a 70s thing? Yeah, the, the big glider, right? With the sort of right. yeah, yeah. cruciform wing. I have one of those but I don't know how what how old it is. I have a 1960s Cessna Skylane by Carl Goldberg that my dad flew. <laughs> you win. Control line or RC? RC. And okay. it's funny because I just pulled it up on Google. I typed in Carl Goldberg Cessna Skylane, and there's a photo of my dad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there's a photo of my dad that my mom took of him starting it, running the engine in the backyard. Wow. Wow. It's black and white. That's <laughs> it's old. And I remember he had given it to a friend of his who flew it in California. And we got it back, and my dad just, you know, stuffed it in the closet. He didn't. He never flew it again. And I uh, recovered it, and it used to hang in my son's room. And I have a cute picture of Ryan walking it down the street. <laughs> we took it outside for a picture, and he just picked up the rudder and started walking it. <laughs> so, but uh, never, never flew it. Oh, cool. So it's, it's forever static now? It's forever static, yes. <laughs> All right, then. Well, let's uh, take another break, and we'll come back with uh, No Workbench. <laughs> All right, Workbenches. Workbench is a wonderful thing. So let's uh, start off with... I know, I'll start with me. I never start first. Everybody else always starts first. I'm getting jealous. But uh, as far as my workbench, well, there really isn't much on it anyway. So, But I did uh, get a chance to fly my RXD250 racing quad a bit uh, the other weekend. And uh, we <laughs> those poor trees, they never knew what hit them multiple times. Uh, it was you were a, flying FPV or line of sight? FPV. Okay. And... Uh, it's amazing how much those branches stick out. <laughs> well, we had a pretty good time. We went to a little park that uh, was pretty much abandoned, so we flew around. And Really, flying quad FPV is quite an experience. That's really a lot different than the airplane. And, uh, I eventually got the hang of it, mostly, but it it takes uh, it's going to take a lot of practice to really get good at it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a new sort of perspective to to get used to. Yeah, it's it's new perspective. You you sort of got to retrain your brain for visual cues, 
and uh, and of course getting used to the machine. It was my I don't have much flight time in the machine at all, so it was sort of a double indemnity trying to learn how to fly this thing and try to fly FPV. But I had a great time doing it. It was a lot of fun, and uh, and I'll be posting my antics on my next uh, video on Hobby View at some point in the near future. Look for it there. And that's about it. I got an interesting... Uh, one of my former students I was helping fly, he had an incident with his plane. Uh, looks like no fault of his own. Looks like he had a radio hit and whacked it into the ground. It's one of his. He flies an apprentice. And he bent the motor shaft. And he asked me if I could straighten the motor shaft. So his plane is currently on my bench waiting for me to try to straighten out his motor shaft. And uh, we'll see if I can be able to do this or not. But I, guess I told him I'd give it a try. You know, I got a vice and a uh, one of those dial caliper things. Not that dial caliper. What are those little things with the needle and the ball on it? Uh, no. But they can measure the run out on the shaft if it's bent and that kind of stuff. So, Why wouldn't you just swap out the shaft? I might try that first, see if I can pull out the shaft. Uh, it may or may not come out very easily. That's the thing. So we'll see. I don't know okay. about you, but sometimes those motors, those shafts, getting them out is, is half the time you tear up the motor trying to get the things out. Yeah, there's um, some technique involved. Not that I'm good at it, but I've destroyed a few motors trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might have to whip out the blowtorch or something. But uh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll try to pull the shaft out first, and it doesn't work, then I'll go medieval on it. <laughs> How about you, Terry? What's on your workbench? Well, as I mentioned, I'm in Florida for the next couple of weeks. And other than flying the Micro B25, most of what I've been doing lately is water-based. So I recently finished up my testing of a neat little model, which is an RC surfboard. And those aren't new. I guess they've been around since the 80s with Kyosho and and other people. But it's essentially an RC boat, but it looks like a, a surfer on a board. And this thing is really agile. It's not terribly fast, but it's fast enough, and uh, it just whips around in a turn and nothing flat. It's a lot of fun. And they're made for actually driving out in the ocean in the waves. Um, I have not had any chance to do that, but I drove it around on a a pond in Texas before I left, and it's just a lot of fun. It's um, a neat little thing, and you don't really have to worry about it swamping or getting wet. It self-writes. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. That's impressive that it doesn't tip it, over. It, yeah, it's uh, really stable. And apparently the buoyancy of the rider figure on top makes it flip back upright if you do manage to flip it somehow. Now, a surfboard Which, is uh, kind of thin. I would think a model one would be really thin. Where do you put all the electronics and stuff in it? It only looks thin. There's um, a fairly thick hole there, and it's got a direct drive shaft that exits through the bottom. I think it's thin by boat standards, but it would be considered thick by surfboard standards. Uh, The other boat I've been playing with, and this has only been in Florida, is a sailboat. And that's something I've never tried before. And it always just looked complex with all the rigging and and things, but it's really kind of simple. Most of the rigging, at least in the model I've been working with, which is the Aquacraft Paradise, it's all structural. So the mast for the sails is only set in the top of the hull and you stabilize it with all these wires and the only two controls are rudder and whether or not the sails stay close or can swing out and despite those only two controls 
there's a lot to learn to make it go where you want it to go. So I've been playing with it some here. I also visited a local boating club, and those guys showed me a lot, and I got to look at some higher-end boats and get kind of a feel for what they look like. And uh, it's been really interesting. There's a lot more to it than I expected. Yeah, I actually have a couple RC sailboats myself, and I found them actually a lot of fun. You learn a lot about basic sailing techniques, but it's a really nice, relaxing, and fun way of driving a boat around. I've always enjoyed mine, and I'm never going to get rid of them unless I replace them with another sailboat. (laughs) (laughs) I had one of those little sunfish sailboats as a kid, and I had no problem with that, and I thought the knowledge would translate over, but... (laughs) Either it had been too long since I'd done the other one, or uh, I'm just forgetful. <laughs> I had to relearn from scratch. It's funny you mention that. That's I actually want to get a full-size sailboat to, to tool around in one of the lakes here or something. And that's one of my near-term goals is to get something maybe sunfish size, maybe a little bit bigger than that. But uh, uh, Mainly because I had so much fun with the little sailboats, I thought it would be neat to have a bigger one that I can get in and tool around in. Yeah. I've never done an RC sailboat, but there's a good friend of mine who is a member of a group uh, here in town. They have a lot of competitions at uh, a variety of neighborhood lakes and ponds, sometimes out at uh, Bush Park. And he has brought a lot to me to help him rewire, uh, replacing electronics and servos. And uh, I helped him move from, what is the, is it 70, what was the, what was the frequency? 75 megahertz, right? Yeah, that, 27 and 75 was the ground. Yeah, so he was 75, so when he switched to Fataba, I helped him, you know, move all his electronics over. But uh, he's really into that. He's got like three or four sailboats. He enjoys it a lot. Yeah, they're pretty Yeah, I, I always thought it would be kind of boring just because they look boring, but when you're at the controls and you kind of start to understand what makes them tick, there's a lot more interest at least for me. Yeah, trying to get just the right tack or uh, getting your sales position just right. It really it's, it takes a lot of practice and, and and skill to do that, to get the most out of the boat, to get the fastest speed and that kind of stuff. I'd like to follow up that uh, we went to a hobby shop when we went to E-Fest, and on the wall we were kind of laughing, but it had those foam horseshoe-shaped boats with EDF fans. Oh yeah, those were and they're recovery boats. Yeah, they're recovery boats. And I showed him a picture of that, and he, his eyes just lit up, going, "That's what I need." And I was supposed to help him make one. We never got back together. But if you get into sailing, that sometimes, unfortunately, happens. You get stuck out there, and you have to have uh, some type of little recovery boat that can grab it and push it back to shore. Huh. Yeah, one of the times I was here, we had kayaks, and, and we needed them. So. It's helpful. Yeah, as mentioned, you were in Florida. One time I was there in Orlando visiting uh, my sister. and we, My brother-in-law and I, we were driving. And lo and behold, there was a little model sailboat regatta going on in one of the little local lakes. So we pulled over real quick and to, to have a look and for a few minutes and stuff. It was really neat to see a whole bunch of them in the water at once, kind of racing each other around the laps and that kind of stuff. That's, so it's, it's fun enough to doing it by yourself, but it's really neat to see a whole bunch on the water at the same time. Yeah, and talking to these guys at the club, their opinion was that anytime there's at least two boats on the water, they're going to end up racing at some point. <laughs> Sounds like the RC car guys. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was really interesting to see how much 
RC airplane hardware translates over to the sailboats. Now, you expect servos and radio gear, but uh, a lot of the rigging and the the, the nuts and bolts and screws, uh, it all carries over. And even the ones that I was looking at the other day, their holes were made out of balsa. They had made out of planked balsa oh, for the side of the hull. Fancy. And, uh, they used monocote covering. Anyway, just a lot of the same hardware and technology carries over to both. Uh, there was a local guy here, a friend of a friend. He built a sailboat. He's talking about wood. This was a work of art. It was all wood planked. It wasn't like a typical racing yacht. This was like a, I don't know what you'd call those things, two-masted schooner or something like that. It looked more like a, a traditional sailing ship than a real modern uh, sailing yacht. And uh, He did let me try it a little bit. And uh, it was different. <laughs> it wasn't quite uh, as, as maneuverable and trying to get the thing running. And, and unfortunately, it had a leak in it, so it almost sank. But we were able to pull it out of the oh. water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I had given the controls back to him. And I realized, it seems to be running really low in the water. and <laughs> It's sinking. So we can run over and grab it out of the water real quick. Um, well, another thing that those club guys mentioned to me is uh, there's kind of a... a more fun-oriented class of boats called footies, and the the basis behind it is that the hull is only a foot long. Hmm. And looking at it, uh, they've been around for a while. Tiny little guy. They're really simple. What's that? Tiny little guy. Yeah, and uh, they're just single sail, uh, very simple. Some people make them out of balsa. Some people use Depron or even solid foam. They're just really rudimentary, but they sail with the lightest wind, and they're really easy and fun. It seems like something you could do with your kids that would be cheap and fun to do. So I'm looking around at different plans. I think I'm going to make at least one and give it a go and see if that's something we want to get into. You were talking about old models. Our, our, our mutual friend Don White has a, a model sailboat that he built in the 70s. And we ran wow. it, uh, I think, last year sometime. And it was really interesting. And really neat. It was very nicely done. And his sail rigging is is the backwards of where, how we have it now, where it used a rubber band to pull the sails in, and then you had control. It was kind of awkward because normally we have we have a, a, a servo that kind of pulls a sail in, and then you release the sail. The wind kind of blows the sail out, and this one was it had a release mechanism that let. The sail blow in, and then I'm doing a terrible job describing it. <laughs> well, did, if it's opposite, you would push the sail out, but it would default well, to pull back. Well, it used a rubber tension. a rubber band to pull it back into tension, and then you had a servo controlled a a clamp that would either hold the string or let go of the string, and so oh, okay. so the wind would push the the sail out, and then you activate the servo to clamp it in that position. And so to, gotcha. to, to get the servo back and to get the sail, mainsail back into neutral, you had to release it and it had a rubber band to pull it into tension, but you couldn't do it if you were like in a side tack. You'd have to face into the wind for the, for, for, so the wind didn't overpower the sail and it would snap back into neutral. It was a really awkward kind of sail this thing after sailing a, a modern RC sailboat for quite a while. Although it was pretty fast. Once you got a downwind uh, run or something, it was actually moved pretty good. It just was really unusual trying to control a sail and it took a while to get get my head wrapped around controlling it. I like and that was the normal method for that era? 
Apparently so. He said he built it from plans out of a magazine or model magazine some years ago. I mean, some, some decades ago. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was. We advertise that we talk mainly about airplanes, but I think it'd be cool to have uh, someone who does boats, uh, either my friend or, or yours, Fitz, who, who does a lot of sailboats, uh, to talk about how technology has improved, you know, the performance of these yeah. RC craft. You know, do they have AS3X? <laughs> <laughs> Just a matter of time, right? Or is that AS2X? <laughs> I don't know. With, with safe? <laughs> yes, there's a return to home. <laughs> Come back! Just as a small example of that, the boat that I'm using, the Aquacraft Paradise, it was just re-released with 2.4 gigahertz radios. Apparently the boat's been around for a long time with... I assume it came with some sort of radio, either a 75 or a 27 megahertz. And they've just re-equipped it with the 2.4 and re-released it. So just based on that alone, it would look like technology is having some impact. As, as a side note, uh, Lee, um, it's interesting you mentioned a guy that does that because I was actually looking for some people in the Houston area that did that uh, because I have a Kyosho Fairwind, I think it's called, which is apparently was... One of the racing classes, I guess, that they, they've done before. And I was interested in sort of meeting up with some people that does this kind of stuff, but I couldn't find really anything useful online about them. It's very pretty. I'm looking at one online. A lot uh, of rigging. So, do, do you have any information on the club that your friend runs oh, in? Or? Uh, not, uh, not at the top of my head, but I will contact him. I will get it and, and uh, hopefully have it available on the website by, the, uh, by this airing. Okay, great. I'd, I'd love to hear about it. contact them and talk to them. Yeah, it's a pretty no, big club. I know he's he he likes to compete. He as he said, he doesn't win very often, and there's like several heats. Um, but it's just a it's a good group, and and I've talked to a couple of them on occasion. So the, uh, some of those guys do both uh, boats and and planes. Uh, all right. Well, Lee, that leaves you. What's on your workbench? Uh, Fitz and I got together uh, at Space Center Houston. Uh, a couple of day, days ago, the uh, shipment from Terry, all the way from Lubbock, uh, arrived, and and uh, Fitz dropped off some presents for me. Uh, two of them were already mine. One was a little LED night flyer, and the other was a multiplex Gemini biplane. But uh, a little package, care package, came in from Terry directly, and that was Terry's uh, attempt to get me into the uh, quadcopter uh, flying, and he uh, sent me an Ares Ethos FPV quadcopter, uh, which I quickly turned into an Ares Ethos. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the FPV part? And, or and the quadcopter I'll, part? I'll let the audience uh, think about that for a second. What happened was, uh, I have I have flown some smaller quads. My son had a little tiny Estes quad, and and I think, I'm not remember the, the brand, but uh, Terry had sent me something that was really small, fit in your hand. Um, so I've flown them, and, and I'm, I've flown helicopters. A long time ago, I had one of those honeybees from Hobby Lobby. Did either of you ever get any of those fixed oh, yeah. blade? Yeah. That was a lot of fun. I, I did enjoy that until I hit the garage door, and it never flew the same, so I, I just stopped flying it. I acquired the ethos i opened it up and looked at it in all its glory it's a it's a it's interesting i mean maybe how this is how earlier ones were but it's a brushed geared quadcopter nowadays you you tend to just see smaller brush brushless motors you know just full size direct drive it has 
a panel, a little LCD panel that you attach to the transmitter and the little camera underneath. So when I first got it, I I did read the instructions, Terry. He goes, did you sure you put the antenna in first? And I did. And so I had the, the camera working and, and looked at the screen, but I could tell that the battery would, needed to be charged and, and, and the one in the panel. So I charged everything. And when it was done, I put the battery in the quadcopter. <laughs> and as I attempted to plug in the FBV camera to the controller, the there's a little adapter that holds the the tap from the battery. It had fallen off. It just fell on the ground. So I picked it up, put the battery in it, and it had two pins. And I just pushed it on. And immediately after that, that lovely electronic burnt smell started flying through the air. And I knew immediately I had accidentally reversed the polarity from the tap onto the uh, controller. So uh, the camera is fried. I destroyed it. I was very sad, and I immediately, you know, told Terry I was sorry. But uh, I did go out and fly it, and it, it's really nice. I enjoyed uh, the quadcopter. The changes I've made to it since is I removed the cover to lighten it a little bit. I had some other batteries that were a little bit bigger, so I strapped them underneath, and I also attached my uh, GoPro to it just so I could get some filming done. And it holds that, well, rather, it lifts the GoPro with ease. There was no weight concern with that quadcopter. I'm kind of surprised by that. It was it was very easy, and, and and I think I kind of did a trade off. I took the camera off, I took the cover off, and I kept the old battery that you had, so it would fit in the little slot. So it gave me a lot of room to hold the GoPro, and uh, no, it did great. Uh, I got some video. In fact, <laughs> I was telling Terry uh, Fitz that I've had this problem with my gutter on my roof. Uh, one of my drain spouts isn't working, so I did a little investigative work and grabbed my GoPro and climbed up, uh, or rather, flew up to the drain and noticed that I had uh, tons of pine needles clogging the drain. So I've already put the quadcopter to use. And uh, again, thank you very much, Terry. It's it's fun. Um, don't know if I'll just go out and buy me another quadcopter soon, but you know, Terry is slowly working his <laughs> method to, <laughs> to get me to FPV. First one's free, kid. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be made to care. Well, and, well, I'm sending uh, Fitz my burnt pile of uh, FPV camera. And if anybody else out there has the Ares ethos or uh, knows someone who does, I'm wondering if there's another camera that's compatible with the LCD screen that comes with it. Do you think it's a proprietary you know, encoding, Terry, that goes just to that panel? I don't know. It comes across on Wi-Fi. But I don't know of any way to select a Wi-Fi network or any of that. You just turn it on and it connects. So that would be interesting to see if there's a way to hack it. Well, I've been online. It looks like a replacement camera only is about 100 bucks uh, with shipping. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't tell you that? No. Yeah. So, I mean, quite frankly, I'd rather get one of those uh, run cams that you were, you know, touting for that price. Yeah. Um, so... You know, I enjoy it. I'll probably just fly it around and use my GoPro just, you know, just to have some video. I, I did like the little screen, the, what, the two minutes I had of testing the camera. Uh, you know, it was pretty impressive. It was it was clear to see. The camera seemed pretty good. You know, maybe I'll find something that's compatible that's cheaper. So are you going to use it to clean the gutter as well? <laughs> hmm. As I stroke my chin, hmm, can I do that? I, now, you just made me think of something. When I first, one of the first quad camera videos I ever saw was a guy who was flying in another country and his quadcopter got stuck 
on a castle near a shoreline. He had been flying it, doing video, and it hit like inside this little castle wall, and it crashed. And he, <laughs> someone videotaped him taking another quadcopter, putting a camera on it, and then adding a wire hook to it. And he flew up and grabbed his other quadcopter and recovered it. <laughs> and that was several years ago, so who knows? Maybe well, there you go. The precedent is there. <laughs> Can I fix my own drain? So you're going to fly it up with a little shovel or one of those little uh, garden shovel things? And... <laughs> you know what? In my head, all I see is that quadcopter just smacking the roof, <laughs> and then raining down in pieces or further clogging my drain. <laughs> Sir, there's, a, there's a quadcopter in your drain. <laughs> <laughs> well, the resulting fire will burn all the oh, There you go. <laughs> I'll just pour thermite down the thing, right? <laughs> there you go. So that's on my workbench, uh, Terry's little uh, quadcopter for me. Lee's quadcopter. Oh, my quadcopter. Scary. Yeah, you're still trying to divert any sort of responsibility in this. I am. It's yours. <laughs> you are a quadcopter pilot now. Once again, we had a right, take us home. <laughs> we had a great podcast. We discussed the horrors of AS3X, the intricacies of the FAA <laughs> Part 107, and sailboats. All right, guys. Once again, thanks for uh, make, making this so great, and uh, we'll see you next time. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com, where you can send us comments and suggestions, and listen to our other great podcasts. Those who live in Las Vegas can listen to us over the radio at the all-new Magic 97.9 FM, KIOF LP Las Vegas.